Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A family of cave people live by simple rules. Any sign of danger, retreat to the cave. Headed by Grug. He's the lead of the family, the patriarch. And one day, a stranger comes into the mix and their cave is compromised. Cage stars in his fifth animated outing in 2013's The Croods. I'm joined by story artist, cartoonist and animator David Trumbull. How are you, David? Hey, man. A little bit about yourself before we dive into this film, David. So, um, yeah, how did you get started in the world of animation? Oh, well, it was a, a crazy sort of like moonshot, actually, because there's no, I mean, any any person in, in animation will tell you there's no one road to get into that industry. And I'd started life as, as an illustrator and a cartoonist, and, and I'd gone to film school. So I had like a foundation of filmmaking uh, under my belt, uh, but it was all in sort of independent short films and things. And then I'd had a long period in my 20s of being a freelance artist. So it was another word for being that I was destitute, you know what I mean, for, <laughs> for a long period of time. And then um, uh, I, I, I uh, had this, 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 this moment where uh, I was working for a lot of people in the United States, freelance, uh, remotely. Um, and so uh, uh, my girlfriend uh, said, you should, she's American, and she said, you should try and uh, apply for your dream job, which is, which is to go work at Pixar. So I, um, I was like, well, that's never going to work, but I'll give it a shot. And uh, I, I sent my portfolio in, uh, but my portfolio didn't have any story work in it. Didn't have any uh, uh, actual animation stuff. It was just my, my freelance artwork. And so I didn't get into Pixar, but there was this weird mixed message um, from the, the head of the internship. Uh, uh, which uh, gave me this feeling that perhaps he'd seen something in my work because he'd asked to see some more, but then had told me that they filled all the positions. And so my girlfriend said, look, you've already gotten a visa to come to America to yeah. potentially come work at, at, uh, at Pixar. So, you know, you and I have been talking about like you coming to America and, and you know, trying and shooting for your dream here. And, and so it was kind of like a, I, I took a, like a, a leap of faith both in terms of my career, but also in terms of that relationship, you know, which is, we're still together now. <laughs> and um, and so, so it worked out pretty, pretty amazingly. But I, I went to this guy's masterclass in New York and he recognized my portfolio. And uh, even though I didn't get into Pixar, this 20 year veteran of Pixar 
ended up getting me a job on my first animated movie. Uh, and we've worked on several pitches for different movies together. And now I'm a full-time story artist uh, working uh, on animated movies. It's crazy. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, do you mind if I ask, what was that first, that first film that you worked on? That first film was uh, what would eventually become the movie Ugly Dolls, which was released last year uh, by SDX. Uh, and and uh, uh, I think I mentioned a little bit off mic, but the, the version of Ugly Dolls that I first worked on back when it was being made by Robert Rodriguez was a, a massively different movie. <laughs> um, uh, there was like you know, uh, uh, it's some of it's in my portfolio and stuff like that, but there was like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. There was <laughs> lots of like giant cockroaches and scorp- scorpions and fungus. It was like, it was mad and totally Rodriguez. And then as happens a lot in animation, like different directors, uh, you know, uh, come in, like uh, the story gets gets changed uh, ad nauseum and stuff. But uh, um, even though that movie kind of came out in a very sort of like, uh, underwhelming way. It was kind of like uh, considered kind of a generic uh, commercialized sort of product-based movie. You know, yeah. it was like trying to hit that trolls market, trying to really sort of sell some product. And the audience was kind of wise to it, even though it kind of didn't really make a big splash. It taught me so much about filmmaking, so much about the filmmaking process. And I'm always going to have like a special place in my heart for it. <laughs> um, one of your previous guests Liam H. Dempsey, yes. uh, fantastic guy, loved the, the Bangkok Dangerous episode. He texted me once after Ugly Dolls got its much belated release in the UK. He was like, he messaged me going, oh, mate, I'm sat in the cinema watching Ugly Dolls. I'm the only one here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, but like, God, you got to love it. That's, that's a loyalty. Yeah, at least there's like a soft launch out of the gate, right? Like if uh, in the way of like films to be working on, like I guess, I don't know, the pressure's mounted high when you've got like Robert Rodriguez. I don't know. I imagine if you'd worked on like, if you'd got that dream job at Pixar and like say your first, your first like feature was, I don't know. Toy something. Story 4 or yeah, something. Yeah, Toy Story 4. <laughs> and it's, then, then you're kind of, you have that pressure of like, uh, the Arctic Monkeys of like, how can we live up to that first album? Like you have that yeah. feeling just lo- looming over you the, the, the whole time. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like it's crazy to think like someone like me, I, I can't think how would you even go about like contacting someone like Pixar? Like, how does that work? Is it just like, is there? Is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's crazy. I mean, like, um, especially when you consider that the story department, which is my my role, like we do the storyboards and, and we pitch to the director and we help with the writing of the story. It's called story artist rather than storyboard artist for the reason that we have a massive impact on what becomes the finished script. Like script pages then can, can sometimes be written based upon an idea presented in a story pitch. So it's like, actually, it's like, it, it's, a, it's a real... Uh, privileged position to be in in the movie because you could be part of a movie where you're not the director and you'll never ever get like um, like credited for it but but you'll see something on the finished product in the cinema that you know came from you and so it's kind of humbling because it's like you get all the power followed by none of the power and and uh, and so it's it's kind of like the front lines of storytelling in the movie and, and you end up with this beautiful sort of like uh, push pull between your desire to sort of progress further and become a director because a lot of story artists um, uh, uh, end up becoming directors in the animation industry. But at the same time, uh, one story artist uh, from DreamWorks, this fantastic story artist called Sharon Bridgman, who's worked on so many amazing projects, said like, you know, obviously everyone wants to develop their own piece or everyone wants to move up. But at the same time, like I'm already in my dream job. 
And so I, I, I consider myself incredibly lucky because it's, it's kind of like a beg, steal or borrow. Like you do whatever you can to, to, to get your foot in the door. But once you get in to this job, a story artist, like I'd be happy if I continued just at the level I'm at, you know, right. because it's, it's, it's magic. Amazing. Well, you mentioned DreamWorks. Obviously, DreamWorks released The Croods. Um, yes, so it did. What, like, um, from from just an animation standpoint, like, what what is your kind of takeaway from this film? Like, um, okay, so so this movie, I think, in order to properly review it with you, mate, um, we're gonna have to give it two reviews. We're gonna review it as a movie. Yep. And we're going to review it as a Nicolas Cage movie. Yes, because, that, is, that is as these always always happen. <laughs> because correct me if I'm wrong, this was, what was it, 2013 this movie came yeah, out? Yeah. This is uh, during uh, Cage's downturn, right? So so as a Nicolas Cage movie, it's pretty bloody good, in my opinion. Um, yeah, well, well, yeah. And for like an animated feature that he's done, this is one that actually he is up front and center. Like, yeah. he is, he gets to kind of show you like, all of his kind of range and like he really gets to work with his voice and like whether it's like just the the speaking parts or even just things he could do with his voice because this this is a very physical movie so there's a lot of like him kind of grunting and like howling and screeching and doing war cries yeah it's brilliant so so you get like for, yeah, I think of all the animated films he's worked up to till this to this date, like this is this is the best like performance from Cage. A lot of them, whether it's Astro Boy, it's just quite. Again, he doesn't really get time to shine because he is very underused in that film. Yeah, and yeah, like and maybe cast in a role that doesn't lend itself to why you get Nick Cage. Isn't <laughs> you know, like it's just it doesn't make sense to put him in a position where he can't cut loose. Otherwise, you know, cause people these days audiences, he's like Jeff Goldblum. He's become his own kind of a meme. Yes. And so it's like Jeff Goldblum used to be in movies like the fly as an actor. And now he goes into movies as this is Jeff Goldblum in a movie. This is yes. Jeff Goldblum in space. This is Jeff Goldblum doing this. And so, um, uh, there's a, a quote from the, the makers of uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which is obviously Nicholas Cage's, one of his more successful, very yeah, yeah. animated voices. And there was a moment in the, um, in the recording where they were trying to get him to, to go a little bigger um, with his part playing uh, Spider-Man Noir. And Cage turns to him and said, oh, okay, so you want the full Cage, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and they were like, yes, absolutely, we want the full Cage. And that actually represents, in a weird way, like a strange tipping point for Cage in this era that starts with the Croods, which is when you think about it, like he hit it massive in the 90s. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I was introduced to him by the sort of triple whammy of The Rock, Face Off and Con Air. And that was back when he was like, could do no wrong. And then there was like this sort of wilderness period where suddenly he started doing things where it was like, okay, I saw him in, uh, <laughs> I actually went to see the Wicker Man remake in the cinema. Fantastic. And that was the, f- it was the first time I'd ever seen him and was like, okay, that's objectively not a good performance. Like, that's not a, that's not a great <laughs> film. Um, uh, that's not just he's an acquired taste. He did not do a good job in that role. Um, and, and so suddenly I was like, okay, but my, my estimation of him went downhill. But now we're in this period where, weirdly, he's come back around the other side because the people who were kids or teenagers in the 90s who loved the full cage yeah, are yeah. now the people making the movies. <laughs> so it's weirdly that now when you get Nicolas Cage into a movie, 
it's full of like like the people hiring him are the people who are like his biggest fans who want him to go and be himself so you get something like spider-man into the spider-verse where they're like saying go for cage and then you also get like um him showing up in uh teen titans uh yeah. as superman as a referential nod to the fact that he was all, almost superman it's the the geek deep cuts it's the fan service and now cage has become fan service well, and so it's like a new renaissance for him to be nick cage in a movie well, it's this thing as well. Like, I often think about it that he is like one of the only actors who, in essence, has played Superman, Spider Man, and you could argue Batman. Yeah, Kick Ass. In, in Kick Ass, yeah, which is. That was like, a great episode, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. So, so that, like, he has, he's got the trifecta of just kind of like marquee super, uh, like superhero names. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, to your point of like, all of the like directors like now who are like casting him and like getting him in their stuff in fans film i think like one of the things we see as well and the 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 analogy i like to use is um he may play like guy seeking revenge like Mm. over and over again but Mm. like he kind of has this like palette of like colors and like paints that he can draw upon where we're getting to see different shades of the same red whether that may be like uh, vengeance a love story where it's mm. kind of like quite straight like man seeks vengeance or we get yeah. him in like mandy where we get art house like mm. real rage cage but with this kind of artistic flair and like they all just harness this kind of essence that is yeah nicholas cage well he's not afraid to way. go for it you know what i mean like it's 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 funny that you mention that because you're absolutely right that the crude's absolutely lends itself and is tailored to what his strengths are as an actor. Because, um, so uh, if you go as far back as his fantastic performance in uh, Raising Arizona, um, he actually said that when the Coen brothers pitched him that character, he was like, I'm going to play him like he's a human cartoon character. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's why he has what is it the the roadrunner on his or like the, the, there's a, a famous yeah, yeah. character on his tattoo on his arm uh or his leg i can't remember which one but but um he plays that like a real cartoon and it's it's a, it's a performance that should not work but absolutely does and so putting him in an animated movie should be like a no-brainer because he's already portraying cartoon characters on film so putting him into animation is like a perfect marriage of medium and subject. Well, yeah, I listened to an interview recently, like in regards to you saying about the uh, the directors asking for full cage on uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Um, he's like famously known to ask, like, can I just have one take for me, please? Like, and that's when you know, that's when you know that you're going to get like, you're going to get cage. You're going to get like, and like, most directors have said like well of course that's the one we use because yeah. <laughs> that's when he's giving us like what he wants and he's allowed to like go for it um which yeah i've, I've got a clip of him actually talking about his performance in amazing in this film so i'll just quickly run that cool run claustrophobic sitting in that little aquarium with a microphone uh you gotta get relaxed so you can perform uh but uh Fortunately, I had two very talented and original, uh, hilarious filmmakers in Chris and Kirk. They loved it when I would go completely, you know, off base to the moon with some pretty outrageous dialogue or behavior. They they encouraged it. 
there we go. That's that. That's Cage talking about his his performance in this film and the directors again willing him to go to those crazy places. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's awesome. The, the, the two directors that he's talking about are uh, Kirk D'Amico, who was a writer on the project for a long period and then was upgraded to a co-director yeah. um, as it went through a series of different uh, iterations. And the director, Chris Sanders, who uh, is a veteran of Disney. Um, uh, he worked on The Lion King. He worked on Beauty oh, and the Beast. And uh, as a story guy, and, and he's had various roles, but he was a co-director of Lilo and Stitch. And in fact, the voice of Stitch. So this guy knows what it's like <laughs> to go full cage, as it were. Like, like this guy knows the benefits of, of uh, improvisation. He knows the benefits of, of letting someone create a character. And then um, he also worked on, uh, with the same, with his Lilo and Stitch co-director, Dean Dubois, um, uh, he worked on How to Train Your Dragon as well. So this is like a guy who doesn't just make like your average fare. He's, he's always pushing to try to create something a bit more unique and uh, a, a bit more uh, stylized. Yeah, all of all of those like are fantastic, like How to Train Your Dragon, just like, and one of the things that that has, and I think shares like with this film, is it has a lot of heart. Like um, mm. this is probably like the first time on the Caged In podcast where I have watched uh, a Nicolas Cage film and uh, nearly cried. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I was going to ask, like right off the bat, what did you think of this film? As someone who's been watching all of Cage, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, it's kind of a two pronged thing for me. Uh, I am, uh, yeah, I have a one year old son, so like that probably plays like quite heavily into like oh, wow. the, the themes of this film and kind of like a father trying to protect his family at mm-hmm. like whatever, whatever odds it may be. Um, <laughs> so there has been like throughout, yeah, throughout the last year, there's been many, many films that uh, shouldn't affect me that probably do. I think anything with this kind of uh, arc in it of a father, <laughs> a daughter, father, son, like, relationship will kind of like get me uh one You're in being... the bag <laughs> oh yeah 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 like embarrassingly one being daddy daycare the um eddie murphy <laughs> eddie murphy movie like yeah that 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 got me and i was like kind of had to look myself in the mirror and go like oh, what what are you doing like so, <laughs> it's, so, like a I... form of, it's a form of social darwinism isn't it and once you all become parents yeah. then it's it's like you you Suddenly you're doing things that no self-respecting person would ever do. <laughs> so I enjoyed it on that, like, like it got me on that level. So like, that's probably, but that's probably cheating. But like, putting that to one side, I like visually, I really, I, I really enjoyed it. It's really like visually exciting. And um, it's, it's happy to like be quiet in moments. Like there are mm. whole, there are whole moments where there is no dialogue and it just mm. like, visually tells the story it lets the animation do its work whether it's these sequences because it is it is your classic like a to b plot mm. line of I, yeah i guess like land, like almost like land before tight like or homeward bound that kind of we need yeah. to seek refuge somewhere we don't like we don't know where that really is in this it's kind of this figurative thing of let's go to the sun and like <laughs> Let's go to the sun. Well, that was actually one of the things that I. So, so I, I, I guess I should say, 
um, sort of ahead of everything I'm about to say. Um, I actually know a couple of the people who worked on this movie. And not only that, but I've had the pleasure of working with them, you know? So uh, this was produced by uh, Jane Hartwell, who was was producer on Ugly Dolls. Um, uh, two of the story uh, artists and story consultants were Paul McAvoy, who's my head of story on Ugly Dolls, and my current movie I'm doing with Netflix right now, Wendell and Wild, and uh, and Rob Briggs, who I also worked with on Ugly Dolls. And the head of story was another story artist I worked with on Ugly Dolls called Ed Gomber, who's just an absolute legend, <laughs> veteran of, of of animation. He's he's got stories up the wazoo, probably few of whom you know, few of them are, are, are good to print. But um, um, uh, what's interesting about it is that. Uh, Paul McAvoy was saying that when he first read the initial draft, like most animated movies change hugely as they go through production, you know, like uh, inevitably. But he said that the the initial pitch for this movie was so fascinating to him because uh, it, like in its essence, there was a character who was this side character who his, his mission in the first plot was that he just wanted to walk on the sun. And, and, and oh. Paul said like, that's just an amazing idea. And just a lovely, lovely thing to, to to consider. And even though that that part of his character pretty much changed into like, oh, we're going to go find tomorrow, it became more abstract. Um, the the imagery of the sun, the imagery of using your hand to to, to see the sunlight on it yeah. and to, to be guided by it, to follow the light, um, uh, endured through all of the different story changes and stuff. Well, it's pretty interesting to talk about like the story of this. Actually, was yeah, you you said like it was written by uh, Kirk D'Amico and um, None other than John Cleese. Yes. Which is like amazing. So I like I did a bit of digging as to where that kind of, like where this kind of came from. And D'Amico and Cleese were actually working on a um adaptation of Roldo's The Twits. Wouldn't you have killed just to watch that? Oh, that would have been amazing. I'm hoping like with this new Netflix deal that they kind of have with the Roll Doll properties. With I know they have like Taika Waititi working on like a couple of like pieces for it. That mm-hmm. in that the Twits kind of gets some kind, yeah, gets the justice it deserves. I mean, like Netflix has been making so many good decisions <laughs> when it comes to animation recently, and just in general. I mean, like um, right now, Netflix animation has been snapping up all the directors it can and asking them what what their passion project is. You know what I mean? Like, and they've been, <laughs> I, I sort of described it to someone the other day. Netflix has been making decisions like two stoners uh, on, a, on a couch. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, do you know what would be really good? Dark Crystal sequel. And it's like 10 episodes, full puppets. Like, 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 like <laughs> shit that you never thought anyone would actually put money behind. But they're like, do you know what would be great? Henry Selleck hasn't made anything in ages. Let's just give the Coraline guy. <laughs> whatever he wants to just make his, his dream project. And that's what I'm working on now. Like they're really slaying dragons when it comes to giving audiences what they didn't even know they wanted because they didn't know it was a possibility. So yeah, that's exciting as well. I would love to see the twins. But. Well, yeah, they've even like, even <coughs> like as recent as um, the Midnight Gospel, they've got like Pe- uh, Pendleton Ward's new like animated series, uh, the creator of Adventure Time. And it's like, they and uh, yeah, it's a lot more geared up to adults. So they're like, great. Like we could see that he kind of teetered on the precipice of making all these adult jokes in an Adventure Time. Let's just let him go. Like no holds barred. Netflix. Yeah. So like, 
it's yeah netflix is doing amazing stuff with animation that paradigm is a paradigm that even now in the isolation we're we're experiencing like they're starting to realize the power of viewing on demand but also with netflix so like you know a movie like ugly dolls come can come out and have an underwhelming opening weekend and then be all the articles on cartoon brew and other places are like what went wrong with ugly dolls and like how did ugly dolls fail whereas netflix can release can just drop a film and they never have to publish their viewing stats unless they want to brag about them. So <laughs> even if people don't watch it in droves, at least the word of mouth of that particular project gets to be actual word of mouth of people just sharing it and talking about scenes that they love and tweeting about their actual feelings of watching it. Whereas like, I think there's an emphasis, especially in the world of animation now, of being like, okay, it has to gross this much money, it has to have this much of an opening, opening weekend. Right now, um, they had to release Trolls World Tour on uh on v- vod yeah, yeah yeah because of the coronavirus and it made a huge pile of money it basically just like cleaned up maybe even more so than it would have if it came out in the cinema so now there's a war going on between cinema chains and universal because universal said we're considering maybe releasing some of our movies just as streaming you know uh, and 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 so two industries are now intensely fighting because <laughs> one was thinking we might be dying. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like, so back, well, with the Croods, um, yeah. what, like, Nicolas Cage obviously isn't the only star name in this. Like, the the cast is amazing, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, the, the cast, let's be honest here, the cast is probably too good for, for, for an animated movie. Like, it's Catherine yeah. Keener. That's that's like this is I think Catherine Keener's first animated role, um, yeah. before she was in The Incredibles two, and it's like Catherine Keener's too good for the part. Like <laughs> it, it, she 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 adds bits of realism to Ugga that are like entirely just because she's Catherine Keener, and yeah. that's like a, a testament to the director casting really interesting people. Like Emma Stone was a star, but she wasn't like Oscar winner Emma Stone at that point. And all of the cast I thought did a pretty damn good job. Yeah, so we also have like Ryan Reynolds in there as Guy and uh, Clark Duke as Funk. So like, again, like even like we had, this wasn't Ryan Reynolds as we know him now. This was kind of like, he was probably limping off of the like failure of Green Lantern at this point, as opposed to the kind of riding high, severing heads of Deadpool and like middle finger up to the camera. Like... But it's just interesting and like even like yeah, Catherine Keener, because like when I think of Nicolas Cage and Catherine Keener, all I think about is adaptation. Oh, adaptation. <laughs> yeah, I totally forgot about that. It's such a good film. But also it's like, okay, so so you're talking about like Reynolds, like Reynolds probably at that time was licking his wounds and it's kind of funny that his name, his character name is Guy. It's quite witty because he's a caveman, yeah. like they don't have very good naming uh, sort of ideas. But 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 at that point, really, Ryan Reynolds, to me, was just, in any movie, I figured his name was just Guy. Gosh, He's yeah. a guy <laughs> um, who has some easy charms and stuff. But when you think about it, like, when it comes to getting actors to be in your movie, um, it's pretty much a no-lose scenario if you're an actor to be in animation. Because, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, like, you know, there are high stakes for all the people making the animation, but no animated movie has ever ruined an actor's career. You know, like, like Patrick Stewart was literally a walking, talking pile of poop in the Emoji movie. <laughs> and he's still, he's still fine. He's still Picard. Like, like animation is, is just a low, it's a low risk investment for you as an actor. You get to show up in a room, usually just by yourself, have a bit of fun, letting loose. Um, and, and then they get you back over and over again as the story gets reworked. 
And and so you get to be in an animated movie, they give you a pile of money, and then you get, like you were saying, like uh, you, you're a new father. A lot of actors get to, you know, even if the movie doesn't do well, like they've got a, 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 a movie to show their kids where they're a cartoon character. You know, there's, so, so it's, it, there's really no reason why any actor would turn down an animated movie. It's just fun. And so, so it, it, it makes choosing the actors that you want to have in that animated movie a question of what kind of movie you want to make. Because, you know, uh, Blake Shelton could have been Grug. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like Nick Jonas could have been Grug. And, and, and they went with Cage. They wanted this uh, eccentric, idiosyncratic, bunch of character actors to breathe more life into these uh, characters than was necessarily there on the page well yeah that's the that's one of the things like especially around this time in uh like anime like yeah 2013 you would have had like a lot of um a lot of like sequels whether it's like one of the later uh ice age or something like that and a lot of those cash in on like you like a like you were saying like a pop star name just to bring people in whereas like having these character actors in this gives the film real heart like and i'm not sure how this did like, i could d- double check how this did kind of commercially in comparison to like though like those films at the time if you it is interesting, the story of um, what DreamWorks was going through at the time. DreamWorks had laid off a considerable number of its animation workforce the same year that the Croods came out. Oh, wow. They were afraid um, because their uh, Rise of the Guardians and a couple of other movies that they'd uh, put a lot of money into had failed. <coughs> and um, uh, so uh, Disney Animation, uh, no, sorry, uh, DreamWorks Animation uh, laid off uh, a bunch of its workers um, and the Croods, I think, actually did better than they uh, had anticipated, and perhaps saved the studio from bankruptcy. But uh, but yeah, it was it was it was a different uh, a different time for DreamWorks. Like they, they were looking some serious financial woes uh, in the eye at that time. Yeah, it's got like a considerable like net profit is con- considered to be uh, one hundred and uh, uh, one hundred six point five million dollars. So like mm-hmm. that's a considerable, and it was the thirteenth, the eleventh highest grossing film of 2013 and there's mm. just in like the stakes of animation it was quite like a heavy year like yeah. this was this was frozen like this mm. was, you know what I mean like which is like probably adorns the walls of like many a like child like this was which, the height of John Lasseter's tenure at Disney this was like him him reaching peak uh, yeah. last year at Disney. And, and it, it's funny how you mentioned like, um, uh, uh, the state of animation at the time, because it's like, so DreamWorks has a certain modus operandi when it comes to animation, which is Disney and Pixar and DreamWorks comprise what I like to call like the big three in animation, you know? Uh, so in comics, you've got DC and Marvel and then smaller, uh, yeah. uh companies, uh, like Vertigo and stuff like that. And then, and then with animation, you've got DreamWorks, Disney, Pixar, and then a bunch of smaller companies like Blue Sky and Illumination that are very much about um, uh, keeping costs low, hiring people who wear multiple hats, and then they're, they're, they make a lot more profit because they, they've controlled how much money they, they, they spent. So DreamWorks and, and, uh, is, is interesting because it has certain movies 
that fit more the blue sky illumination mode, like something like Boss Baby or something like Captain Underpants, where they will make something that's a smaller movie. Uh, yeah. Stylistically, artistically, it is, it is designed to be a money spinner. Um, because Pixar could release a movie like The Good Dinosaur, which made 400 million, but just because Pixar spent so much money on its movies, and that movie had such a long gestation period, that was considered Pixar's first financial disappointment, <laughs> 400 million. So that's how crazy animation is. So DreamWorks should be loaded because it sort of hits a compromise between making smaller movies that are more uh, profitable just by the basis of being cost-cutting. And then it also, every now and again, makes franchises like Kung Fu Panda, How to Train Your Dragon, and The Croods, where they put a bit more... Um, money into just making something that's absolutely stunning to watch. Like you can tell a lot of money ended up on that screen in the crews. I mean, you, you're right. It's a stunning movie uh, on a visual level. And just like, uh, so, so um, I, I, I'd say the crews is really solidly in the middle between does sort of the high watermark of something like how to train your dragon and then like the lower strata of DreamWorks animation fair. Well, yeah, I've always been like a massive fan of like animated films. And I'm like kind of disappointed that I let this one like, slipped me by for so long and it's kind of maybe without this kind of journey I'm going on watching every cage film or I imagine I probably would have eventually watched it anyway having a child but like (laughs) but like um yeah that's a good question actually I was going to ask did you watch this for the first time had you not watched this before I'd never watched this before no 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 and like I was very like yeah I'm kind of I'm so glad I did because like I guess to talk about like things like just the character design on the crudes themselves, but then this kind of like landscape they're put in and this kind of like menagerie of like interesting, like and fascinating, like otherworldly prehistoric creatures that like just kind of like interesting and fun plays just like visually and kind of like, yeah, just aesthetically pleasing looking, whether it's like a, leopard spotted woolly mammoth that just oh, looks yeah. like it looks looks beautiful and just like the textures on the furs and stuff like that mm. and um it's pretty a weird thing to talk about in animation but like the camera movements it like i guess like, i wanted to talk about that yeah. i wanted to you're absolutely right the the um so in animation in stop motion obviously you're filming something with a yeah. real camera so so an awful lot of real filmmaking brio goes into lenses and and camera moves and cranes and dolly shots because you basically have to cre- recreate what a camera move is but on a yeah. smaller scale whereas in animation um it's called layout so before um like like probably a hundred people uh have to get their fingerprints on one wow. shot of animation before it ends up in the cinema it's like from from my first few scratchy doodles uh, on a tablet doing a storyboard, uh, then redrafted a hundred times. Then it gets um, uh, all the assets are made digitally. So if there's only so many assets you can afford, obviously they had a ton of assets on this movie. Yeah. It's just absolutely like chock a block. It's almost like uh, uh, Disney's um, Alice in Wonderland for just how much story uh, is, is 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 built around world building and, yeah. and incredible character designs, creature designs. But like, so layout is 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 when they take all those assets and create the camera move before all the animation is put on, before all the textures and the lighting is put on. And so, um, I often get frustrated when I see shots of mine in movies. Um, uh, like uh, like on 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 Ugly Dolls, there are times when I'm like, that's not what I drew. 
Like, like, and, and someone on layout who was doing his own camera move and trying to translate what I do. Some story artists put a lot more work into trying to show what the camera move is going to be than others. And I love seeing how the camera moves. This movie, they did a couple of really excellent things. One thing is that they employed handheld. They employed the illusion of it being a real camera. Yeah. Like, it, it wasn't just swooping around organically, like, like something that couldn't be real. I mean, they did the same thing in How to Train Your Dragon with the flying shots because they would actually add wind shake to the camera as though you were, as though it was strapped yeah. to a helicopter following <laughs> this freaking dragon. But um, um, they did one other amazing thing. So a visual consultant for this movie and the How to Train Your Dragon movies was none other than uh, cinematographer legend Roger Deakins. This yeah. is the guy who, 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 you know, he lends the Oscar-winning 1917, you know, uh, Blade Runner 2049, most of the Coen Brothers movies. They got him on um, around the same time that he also consulted for Pixar on WALL-E. And, and, and he basically treated all of the digital cinematography crew to, like, a Deacon's tutorial. He gave them, like, uh, the full Deacon's, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, so consequently, like, there are scenes in the crews, like, where Eep, is following that little patch of light, like it's she's a cat with a laser dart, you know what I mean? And then going out and finding all those embers and, and like that is lit like 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 no country for old men. You know what I mean? It's lit like it's lit like um like uh like a Coen Brothers movie and it's it's stunning because a lot of things um, that, that I find irritating about a lot of uh, more mainstream animated, more commercially minded animated movies is that because they're trying to sell toys, toys of the characters, toys of ugly dolls, toys of, 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 of any product really, yeah. like, the lighting is often very sterilized and like they overlight because it's like a pack shot for a commercial. You're trying to show yeah. them at their most colorful and poppy because you're trying to sell a bunch of trolls. And in the crudes, it's grubby, the characters are hairy, you can see every follicle on Gru's face, they are scratched up, they're, 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 there's dust everywhere, light streams through the dust. It is a cinematic experience to watch the crudes. And I think on, 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 on a visual level, it just is peerless to me. Well, yeah, on that thing you, you mentioned about like marketability of like like toy tie-ins and stuff like that, this doesn't, this don't like, that this seems like this was the, the the furthest thing from their minds because like yeah you're not gonna like sell a lot of grands are you you know <laughs> <laughs> like the only the only thing I could kind of see is yeah maybe like the like the animals but like that's mm. like by the by like the actual like family themselves and like it's something again that like is just great character design like mm. you notice these kind of like big scar down Grug's nose and stuff like that and it's just like. It's stuff like that that, like I don't know, uh, brings you in, brings you into this like the story, and just like I don't know, you get these great, great moments, and like just visual like slapstick humor in this as well is yeah. like what's well, a lived-in world, isn't it? You know, there's a there's a sequence um, that I've got in my notes known as uh, I've written it down as the snake belt uh, sequence, where we have. Uh, <laughs> Grug is trying to become a like the, the the kind of thrust of this film is just a very like well, it's, it's a very modern like thing of an older generation worrying that they're going to be taken over by the yes. the young the younger generation which the I guess yeah yeah ev every every parent every person in industry any technical revolution everybody kind of has that very real fear that 
yeah. before the love and the, 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 the need to in, to embrace change you will literally become a caveman whether that is Pretty, like, yeah exactly the, the, absolutely. the, the digital age and yeah he's well put man he has this moment where he is like right that's it i'm gonna become <laughs> a blue sky thinker i'm gonna come up I love this bit. <laughs> all of these like ideas of how, how i can like innovate for the future and um he's like dawned a like snake as a belt that's like self-tightening <laughs> and we get this like amazing performance from cage we get oh like, it's one of the three most cagey bits of the movie go yeah, ahead do he, it. Rock he, it. Rock he, it. He, he kind of like when when the belt like tightens up he's like it's self-tightening tightening. it's so get, good he gets the like almost almost ape elvis in like we know it's something that like cage loves to do anyway but like we get like a like these brilliant moments and yeah it's a slapstick we get like him tr- like falling about with these like new ideas like i call this one like the mobile home and we get like interactions with like the creatures and he gets like flat and then i i love the fact in this that even though we see quite early on with stuff like this that that he, he almost seems like he's invincible and there's no yeah. peril for this character yeah when it eventually gets to moments where there is like like senses of dread where like yeah. there's a moment that's very com- yeah. comparable to the uh toy story free um conveyor mm. belt scene oh obviously yes. <laughs> yes, it's like yeah them stuck in like uh some kind of molten ooze quicksand you oh, do yeah. like you are there going like oh shit this 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 could be it and more to that point like when grog kind of has his farewells of his family as he throws yeah. them over a ravine to tomorrow. Yeah. You get this real lump in your throat in that it's like, oh, he could actually, he could actually die. He could be extinct. He could have, even though he's accepted this change into like, he wants to accept the new world. Yeah. yeah. That irregardless, he's going to be left behind to die with the with the old world, which is just yeah. like, well, it, I was it, like, fuck. It's pretty powerful. I mean, like, and, and, and you touch upon something that, that, that you mentioned earlier, which is absolutely right, which is that every now and again, the movie slows down. Like the moment when him and Guy are stuck in the tar, and then the moment where he's saying goodbye um, and throwing all of his family members one by one, like they spend a lot more time on that ending than you expect, because animated movies tend to wrap up really fast. And and uh, so so... I want to talk about uh, the story structure of this movie a little yeah. bit because like, a that is my as is my want this is yeah, my job yeah, yeah, so yeah, I, all I do when I watch movies yeah. these days especially animated movies is I, I dissect the story and me and my girlfriend brainstorm it a lot but like <laughs> um but 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 one thing that's interesting is that I'm I'm wondering how you perceived the movie through what I know about the movie and how it was made but like um this is a movie that that, that was um uh, uh put through several different iterations right, um, before it got to the version you see. And so consequently, you see ideas uh, that were generated for several different versions of the movie that have been put together and sewn up into what you now see. Yeah. Um, Ed Gombert, the head of story, you know, said that he he cared very much about trying to get the story dynamics right, but um, uh, that, that they were often trying to fight to, to incorporate these two different versions of the story. So originally when it started out, it was playing with that uh, concept you, you mentioned, which is uh, the idea of um, uh, Plato's fable of the cave. 
you know, the idea of people having mental limitations, both uh, physical and, and psychological, that, that some people want to stay indoors and the other people, uh, it's convention versus curiosity. Um, okay, I've got I to gotta ask you on a tangent because this yeah. is something I've been dying to ask you since everyone watched <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. Sorry. I, 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 we will, we will get back on story in a moment, yeah. but I have to ask you this question. Okay. How differently did you view the opening of this movie in a post COVID-19 world? Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that, the movie is like Grug wants to keep his family safe and inside the cave and Eep wants nothing more than to swan about outside. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and he, telling you and like and we literally established in the really witty opening like narration that all of the other families they know have been picked off by different predators and the common cold <laughs> and and so like i was watching it and i just started sweating <laughs> like i was like oh my god this is literally my life right now i am grug in the cave <laughs> and 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 suddenly like when when this movie first came out in 2013 i was like you're supposed to root for Eep. You are really on her side when she's like trying to get out and see the light and, and, and have a live, live an adventure. But now through the prism of where we are, I'm like, my God, what a spoil entitled brat. She's gonna have, she's gonna get her whole family killed just so she can hang out with the sun. <laughs> This girl needs some talking to. She should get grounded. And there's that bit later on in the movie where she's like, where she's like, you know, that wasn't living. That was just not dying. And it just reminded me of like the idiots in America right now who have been like protesting in different yeah, states, yeah. trying to get the, the states reopened. And they're just there sharing the coronavirus with each other, like continuing like this sort of Darwin Awards um, uh, that, that is now very literal in the crudes. And I'm just like, oh my God, what did you think of that? Because I got so anxious watching it. Well, it was like, it's this thing. I think it really like firms the the kind of messages of the film like mm. even further it's this kind of like millennial versus uh boomer thing like in one end in essence of this kind of you don't understand each other but it also has this kind of thing of yeah like you were saying the kind of what is it generation z like the <laughs> like, exactly that, yeah. that versus that versus the like millennials are this thing it's of like, like generation oh, jurassic and generation yeah. cretaceous you know? <laughs> yeah and it's that I, I i i can't help but find a lot of links with like what's going on currently like even even yeah. going back to astro boy like it's set in a dystopian future where there's a disparity between wealth uh between the rich and the poor like yeah. the world has become basically a uh sh like mass garbage dump and people have isolated themselves on a um floating island above above the planet and yeah. we have a scene in that of a like a parent really trying to like desperately homeschool their child and all i could think was <laughs> wow th this is like the coronavirus or or yeah like a, a slight tangent but talking about like mandy i couldn't help but watching it going oh it's about a hillbilly in the woods who's like getting people drugged up and like a part of a cult that's really like Tiger King. And it's just like all these kind of like benchmarks of like 
what's happening right now. Yeah, the, the, the path to fatherhood is, is, is basically can be separated into two chapters. There's <laughs> when you watch the road for fun and when you watch the road as like a how-to manual yes. for protecting your children. Um, and, and it's so funny because like you, you say that you've got a, a, a one-year-old, Mazel Tov, that's so great. Um, and that must be such an amazing emotional thing to suddenly watch animated movies. Like children are such sponges and, and you, you see how important and yeah. what a great privilege it is to work in animation because you are reaching children right at their most impressionable. But but what's interesting is that I um, my girlfriend has children and I watched uh, The Croods this time, uh, the second time I'd seen it, uh, with her son, Xander. And it's like uh, th there were moments when, you know, Grug learns to be a, a good dad and where he sacrifices himself, where I felt really bonded to Xander. We were just there, yeah. like, like we we're both getting emotional and stuff. Like the bit at the end where, like, you know story-wise, because I've watched enough, like, I've had my 10,000 hours of watching. <laughs> know that when he says his first line at the beginning, like, never not be afraid, you know that that line is going to come back. Yes. And it's going to be the reverse. That's that's just story 101. So I knew that line was coming. And even still, Nicolas Cage just, you know, he he, he sold it. He, he slayed me with that line. I want Nicolas Cage to whisper, never be afraid before throwing me over China. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, and, and like that is a um, uh, an insight into just, you know, like we're talking about Cage being untethered, you know, like being allowed to cut loose. That was a great bit of subtle work from him. You know, where he, you know, Emma Stone, he, you know, he matched her toe to toe really when it came to, to that sequence. And okay, so, so yeah, it, it is a brutal world. Um, and, and you're right. Like you mentioned a, a dystopian future. This is like a dystopian past. Film. Yes, yes. And, and there's like, there's bits that are really savage and brutal where they get away with a lot of Tex Avery humor, like the grandmother almost wanting to eat her own grandson. Yeah, and yeah. and like there's there's literally a tracking shot that tracks through the carcass of a bird as it is being eviscerated from the inside <laughs> by the by the crudes while they're eating it like like freaking chainsaws and and um you're watching it going like oh my god this is actually like a really harsh world that they actually push it right to the edge of what censors would probably want right for for for, for parents uh, wanting to watch a movie with their children there's a there's a sustained comedic and dramatic sense of threat throughout the whole movie, which is quite brave for an animated movie. And, and I was watching it thinking, um, the thing I was thinking about earlier about the, the COVID thing, which is that like, I was like, when I first watched it, I was, I was supporting Eve. The second time I watched it now, I was supporting Grug. And I realized that is the perfect foundation for good drama, which is that there's actually a legitimate reason, a valid reason why Grug is the way he is. Yeah. So, so good drama, as I've defined it from constantly, you know, consuming these movies, is like good drama is someone making the wrong decisions for the right reasons. And, and, and bad drama is someone making all the right decisions for boring reasons. So, so, so if you take the story dynamics of Eep and Grug, they actually have, they have to meet in the middle. It's a, they, they actually have to compromise because you can't just say no to danger like you can't just like ignore yeah. danger but at the same time like like at the end her arc is to say i'm scared you know at the end and then his arc is to say never be afraid and so it's like yeah like it, it, the story dynamics of the beginning and the end are, are, are really effective but i'm going to talk a little bit about story now yeah, so so yeah. so because so, 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 because it sounds like you really really enjoyed um a lot of the gags Right in this movie this movie is wall-to-wall -wall a gag machine yeah i love the gags i kind of love like, like love the set pieces like there's a 
yeah. there's the uh right like chasing away from this kind of prehistoric tiger sequence where they Mm. all jump on top of like this woolly mammoth that's like yeah great like all stuff like that i even just like enjoyed these these moments of them traveling kind of just set to like the brilliant um is it um alan silvestri score alan silvestri yeah absolutely who worked on lilo and stitch with chris sanders yeah and then is obviously the creator of the well the composer for the the Avengers theme, like, yes. so like and Back to the Future, like this yeah, yeah. is the Back to the Future guy, yeah, um, and and yeah, so so what's interesting is that there's actually a reason why um, the movie is as visually off the chain as it is. This is rooted in how the movie's production uh, worked out. So originally, you were right. Like originally, they were going to make this as a stop motion movie with Ardman animation with John Cleese. Right. Oh, wow. So, so there was a period around the time of Chicken Run where Ardman had like a five movie deal with DreamWorks. Yes. So DreamWorks was going to distribute Ardman movies. So, The Crudes was one of the concepts that John Cleese and John D'Amico were given because they were going to make the twits. They said, hey, do you want to look at some of our other projects? Um, uh, uh, have a look at this. So, Cleese and John D'Amico wrote a bunch of drafts of this story. And that story, the original story of The Crudes, had no family. The family were in it, but they were not in it throughout the whole of the movie. It was just Grug and Guy. And it was that struggle between convention and curiosity. It was about a set in his ways caveman and an inventor caveman who was like, who could see possibility and he wanted to walk on the sun. And so it was, as described by Ed Gombert to me, it was planes, trains, and automobiles. Amazing. In prehistoric times. It was them going on a road movie to, to, and, and bickering all the way. And so that's a really cool thing because you can see that bits of that, like them getting stuck in the tar, are obviously yeah. vestigial parts of that original story. But um, so what happened was, was that uh, uh, Cleese eventually like moved on, uh, the, the art man, uh, a studio passed on it and, and eventually it got re- reverted back to DreamWorks and they started developing it. Interestingly, Ardman then made a stop motion caveman movie. Yeah, early uh, Yeah. Which I've not seen, but like it's interesting to see how these things shake out. Like obviously people like, you know, have a lot of institutional memory <laughs> when it comes to animation. <laughs> but um, um, so they were working on this movie. Um, Chris Sanders was brought in to rewrite it, um, you know, uh, because he'd done such great stuff with Lilo and Stitch and things. And then they got their team together. They started working on the story. And then halfway through, um, as happens in animation, there's a lot of director changes in projects. A lot of people get replaced, like stories, like you're at the whim of of an executive who has a vision of something. Like these things happen all the time. And and so the directors of uh, How to Train Your Dragon needed to be replaced and a new creative team has to be put in. So How to Train Your Dragon was originally really close to the book, but that just didn't make a good animated movie. So they got Chris Sanders to reunite with his Lilo and Stitch uh, collaborator, and he left the crews to go work on How to Train Your Dragon. But instead of shutting down How to Train Your Dragon, Jane Hartwell and the other producers kept a, a skeleton crew of the story department and the art department going in this hiatus. So the, the writer, John D'Amico, kept writing drafts and, and Paul McAvoy, uh, Rob Briggs, Ed Gombert, and a bunch of other really talented story guys just spent a couple, like, like, like uh, this, this sort of like wilderness period 
developing story and character ideas. And at the same time, the art department and the production department just started slaying dragons, creating all those creatures yeah. that you see in the movie. You'll notice there's, a, there's, there's more assets in that movie. Like, and by assets, I mean individual character yeah, yeah, yeah. designs and creatures and plants and things than you see in your average movie. It's like they just, it's, it's like the, they're burning through budget. Um, but it's because, it's because they had this massive incubation period while Sanders was away in which they just went all out creating a world. And then the story department just did sequence after sequence after sequence filled with gags. Consequently, my criticism of the Croods, uh, I, I don't know if you can call it a criticism because it's one of its strongest assets, <laughs> is, is, is that uh, it's got a really effective lean opening and a really emotional lean ending. Yep. And then the middle like hour, it's like an hour 38, the middle hour is just, um, in story we call it the fun, the, the fun and games portion of the film. Yeah. Which is like the beginning of the second act, you've entered the new world and you, you get to play around with the promise of the premise. So, so, so the cruise just has a massively flabby middle filled with every single creature and yep. venture gag that they could possibly throw at you. And it's because of this abundance of storytelling brio that they had built up. Chris Sanders came back and started rewriting it and, and, and got back on the project. But it, 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 consequently, there are, there are bits of that movie where they, they just throw the kitchen sink at you. There's even, there are so many gags in the middle of this movie that there's literally a banana peel gag. Like that's, that's how much you're scraping the bottom of the barrel there. Well, there's even time for like self-aware stuff. Like uh, there's one moment that like really stood out to me and it's almost like, it felt like a uh, one for Cage in that him and Guy, uh, so Guy devises these many different ways of how to like, uh, using inventions and stuff like that to mm. capture animals or distract mm. them, whereas like the crudes are very much rudimentary. One person distracts, one person runs in, grabs the grabs the egg from a, from a chicken. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very, 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 very caveman esque. Uh, I love the family kill circle. That's a great. Yes. Thing. It's just so, <laughs> it's so I don't know how they managed to get that <laughs> on the census. Yeah, never leave the family kill circle. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's this moment when. He's devised this kind of, uh, it's like this chicken-like yeah. uh, kind of puppet for them to control and they're kind of behind this rock. And um, Grug just like says to him, he's like, give me the acting stick. Hand me those, yeah, oh no, this is, okay, so this is a moment that that like uh, I was uh, I was holding on to because like, so we're, like I said, we're going to be reviewing this as an animated movie and we're going to be reviewing this as a cage <laughs> yeah, movie. Yeah, 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 we've... In a, in a good Nicolas Cage movie requires that he give you at least a couple moments, like a cage out moment. Oh yeah, of like course. When you yeah. cage out. And, and, um, me and my brother Steve, uh, he he does the fifty uh, uses for the word love podcast. You know, he, we often say that like when I go see a Tom Cruise movie, I want at least one cruise gasm, or, or else it's an unsuccessful <laughs> cruise movie. He waited until the last second of Battery to give me a cruise gasm, <laughs> and I never forgot. It. But there was this moment. <laughs> there's this moment like that moment where 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 guy is trying to act this puppet it's utter tex avery surrealism it's just yeah. this is the gag guys on the movie just going overtime. but but there's that bit you're right he says scared i'll show you scared hand me those acting sticks <laughs> like that and then and then proceeds to like wig out with the puppet and for me if ever there was a mantra for nicholas cage 
It is hand-me-those acting sticks. It just manages to be both funny in situ, but also utterly like a statement on Cage's own appeal. Well, yes, it's it's a very good, like, meta gag in that, like, it's one that, like, plays to the parents, but not in this kind of alluding or to anything like modern technology or Mm. innuendo. It is just, like, very throwaway as well. It's funny in its own right as you said, but like, if you kind of know Cage and what he is like, what he is famous for, especially up until this point, it's like, that's yeah. a real one for the oh, it's, it's vintage. It's vintage. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's mm, oh, butterfly kiss. It's so good. And, and, and it's funny because like, you cast a character like Nick Cage, you know, um, DreamWorks used to make, you know, they, um, they rose to glory on the back of Shrek, which yes. is incredibly pop culture referential. And then for a while, DreamWorks did things like Chartel, which were like super, super, almost irritatingly referential, right? And then they, they, they pushed the boat out a little bit with Kung Fu Panda, which, was, which had Jack Black in it, but was trying to do a proper Wushu Kung Fu movie, yeah. you know? And so the, the, they basically realized that, hey, we can, we can actually make a movie that feels more like a Pixar movie with a bit of our DreamWorks sensibilities. And so the idea that you have Nicolas Cage in a movie, but he doesn't say something like, you know, I'm going to take that McCornivore's face off you know he doesn't he doesn't have a moment that's 100 percent. but like yeah um that moment just like really sells the appeal because every cage fan is just going to be like that's him talking about himself <laughs> and um okay so so talking about gags did you like the middle act because so what did you think of the movie structurally structurally i agree with you in that it does kind of have this like whip smart like just like quick opening that Mm. kind of it sets all the pieces in play very quickly and kind of you know you know where you are straight away Mm. um and yeah that as as i've already said like that ending like it got me it like it just like kind of it's it's got it gets you where you're going man yeah it it like it just kind of like it's like a knife to the heart this is actually really like this is sideswiped me that I like. This is gonna do that. Like, I've got this image of you literally with your one-year-old baby throwing him over a crevasse. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, I love you. Never be afraid. <laughs> Someone pick up my baby. <laughs> so then, like that middle, I, I, to- I totally understand your point that it is. It does have this like flabby middle, and like, but I think I just kind of let myself go with it, like because I kind of enjoyed the world and I like just. I like the characters and I like I like the vi- the visual stuff of like the family mm. on stilts and kind of like without without using words just kind of you can see yeah. the disdain that Grug has for Guy and just like yeah. you have yeah the moment you talked about with them all eating this like chicken <laughs> carcass and then story time where like we kind of really boils down the the counterposing points of Grug and Guy when yeah. uh, they essentially tell the same story but Grug's is very like it boils down his point of his is a cautionary tale yeah fear, fear yeah. ends fear. with death yeah. yeah 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 whereas like Guy's is like his is always Bangkok dangerous <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very it's very optimistic do you know what I mean it's, it's very, very woo woo it's, it's like oh and then we then we float until tomorrow and it's like it's that is yeah it's it's it's, it's like that so like I enjoy, I enjoyed the middle section but yeah I do yeah. I, I, yeah I think you're right I you you hit the nail on the head when you said it was just 
flat out entertaining. Like it, it, it's like airplane. The sheer yeah. number of gags per minute, per second is so high. And the art direction and the, the creativity on display, uh, like even stuff like that, that saber-toothed tiger you mentioned, that the green saber-toothed tiger that's like colored like a parrot was just yeah. like one of the art directors was just playing around with one of the drawings of a saber-toothed tiger, was bored and colored it like a parakeet. And then it developed into this whole thing about every creature you see on screen is a chimera that doesn't exist in nature. Just like the, the, the strangeness of being like, hey, we're going to do a prehistoric movie that's going to have nothing to do with reality. We're going to live in our own stylized world and we're just going to go all out with the visuals. Like they went to, uh, they went to this incredible, uh, they went to Zion National Park in Utah to look at rock formations. Like so much of this movie yeah. is just, is gorgeous. But like, so, so, so gag-wise, you know that bit where he says, hand me the acting stage, yes. right? So it's like, this touches upon something that I've always thought about film, which is like filmmaking is a magic trick. And animation is like the best version of a magic trick. Oh yeah, of course. So magical. In fact, it's a magic trick that once you know how they did it, it's all it's more magical. That's 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 how beautiful it is. Usually, magic f disappears when when it becomes. But like, but if there's one thing I would describe Cage as as the performer, like especially when he says "hand me those acting sticks," is like other people might use those acting sticks better than him. You know, other people might be m might be more consistent with the acting tricks. Other people might be better at the magic trick than he is but he will always entertain the fuck out of you. Oh, definitely. Like, like, yeah, yeah. Like, like other people might do it more consistently, but he, he's a magician and a, like a magician has to be skilled at what he does, but he has to be a showman to be a true act. And Cage is just a great showman, an MVP of like, all these gag artists throwing everything at you. And like my criticism of the middle act of the movie is just like, it's like, um, I think it's just that it gets repetitious. It's like, okay, yes. so they, they, they throw stuff at each other a lot. And then it's like, okay, he resents group, uh, guy, he resents guy, he resents guy. And then he tries to kill guy, he tries to kill guy, he yes. tries to kill guy. And it's, after a while, it just sort of piles up. And, and, and so the same beat gets, gets underscored so many times that you feel like, I wish that they could, could have had some of the brevity of the first and the third act. But at the same time, <laughs> there's a bit where they're riding a giant cob of corn, where it's a bit like, okay, I think they jumped the shark for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one maybe could have seen the bottom of the story, Scrappy. You know, like, like we, we could have maybe cut a little bit of, of, of that. I mean, like, there's even a freaking weirdly niche V for Vendetta reference, did you mention? No, no, no. When the cob of corn flies up into the sky and bursts into popcorn like a firework, you hear, da, 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 da. you hear Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture. And I'm like, did I just watch a beat of any gag in the movie? <laughs> My God, they let the story guys run rampant. Like, there's so much going on. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It, 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 it justifies its existence because you just enjoy being, the, the foundation is so strong. Well, yeah, they mess around with like, they mess around with scale as well, like their their relation into like the animals that populate this kind of world is like obviously a saber toothed tiger you would expect to be the size of like a, a, a tiger now, but like mm. they are massive in comparison. And it just like all of that just makes it like visually visually really exciting. And like yeah. I'm just yeah, I probably we should probably mention the fact that this has had like kind of a like a sequel that's supposed to have like mm. come out and it seems to have had like a very like tumestuous like well that's interesting mate i mean like you're talking about you're talking about the nature of animation right yes. now because like <laughs> the funny thing is is like 
Crude One was no different. You know, Crude One yeah. was on hiatus. Like, Crude One was originally going to be an Ardman movie. These movies go through so many, like, these movies regenerate, like Doctor Who. They, they, they have so many faces. And, and what's interesting about the process is that I mentioned, like, in animation movie stars, that you get, you get a truckload of money and then you go into a room and record. Yeah, yeah. They record all the way through the story process. Like we we have temp dialogue that we record while we're doing the initial ones, but as the movie gets more serious, we get the stars in and we start like like uh, recording them. There are probably, I bet you, five entire movies of Crudes Two with Nicolas Cage's voice that exists somewhere. Yeah. Right. The, the, and and we'll only see one of them when it finally comes out. Apparently this year or maybe next year. <laughs> but it's like. That movie's already gone through a couple of iterations. So, like, I guarantee you that they've already got Emma Stone and Catherine Keener and uh, Kat Dennings and, and Leslie Mann and all these other amazing actors that are apparently in the movie. Like, there's, there's B-roll of all of those characters. Yeah, uh, like the, the idea for the, the, the sequel sounds, sounds good that like, the focus this time will be on Ugga, so Catherine Keener will get her chance to shine like from oh, i didn't know that i love that from what i've read yeah it's 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 gonna explore motherhood and it's gonna be the first chapter in society like expanding on like the 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 first film being the last chapter of the caveman mm. and then um leslie mann and uh her daughter like kat dennings would play her daughter called dawn um nice and they would kind of be like a rival family in this new 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 way of life and it's kind of sounds like the perfect like idea of what, where this could go next in that it's this hmm, a almost, society yes. or, or, or just the, that'll catch on in about 10 <laughs> billion years <laughs> or just this idea that like i don't know the kind of family dynamic in this just like like harkens like reminiscent of like just just your classic like tv sitcom like family sitcoms almost like a um married with children like you've kind of got this overbearing like patriarchal figure who's just kind of like Mm. at odds with his family all the time and like yeah just just as i would love i would i yeah i'll say it now I, I really want this sequel to happen i don't think it will happen this year even it just seems mm. to be like pushed back and pushed back and yeah it's, it's, i think what i can read here is it's supposed to be delayed until the 23rd of december this year but i can easily see that going to next year yeah, and, and the, the balls are, are all up in the air, not just in whether or not at what time it will come out, but also what, what medium it will come out in. Will it yes. come out in theatres or will it come out as a streaming service? Like, you, 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 who knows uh, at, at this rate? I mean, like, it's interesting. You talk about, like, the, the sort of slightly more conventional framing of a family with a patriarchal figure. Um, me and my girlfriend like to uh, diagnose uh, animation story yeah. formulas because, like, every animation studio has its own kind of formula. And uh, we kind of crystallized it down to like five basic stories that always get used in animation. And so there's stuff like there and back again is the most obvious. It's like a Pixar Quest movie, basically. Um, that you know, like you've got to get somewhere, and and you know, the lesson learned is the is the ticket home, essentially. Yeah. And then you've got stuff like Kindred Spirits Against the World, like Lilo and Stitch, or E.T. You know, you've got Into a New World, which is stuff like Ugly Dolls or like Trolls or like anything where a character comes into a a, a new environment and he either changes that environment or the environment changes them. And then you've got stuff like the Benevolent Catalyst, you know, um, uh, where the main character doesn't have an arc, but everyone else around them does have an arc. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so much fun to geek out over these things. But, like, <laughs> if I were to diagnose the crudes, I'd say it was we stick together. 
which is the, 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 the formula for there's a familial um, uh, dynamic that's at play here. And all the relationships are discordant at the beginning, but it's a relationship that should be strong. Yes. We know should be strong. And so they face forces that try to pull them apart um, from like the external and the internal. And then, you know, they spend the first two acts becoming more distant from each other. And then it gets, re you know, resolved in the final act and they, they, they come back stronger. So um, that's a, a tried and tested method. It's like the incredible. It's like you, you put a family on screen. Um, but what's interesting is that that family didn't show up until several drafts into this movie. Yeah. So, so originally it was Guy and Grug trying to get Grug back home to his village. So they established the family in the first act and they show up at the end. But they realized that, like, um, uh, this is what Rob Briggs told me when I, I, I emailed him. They realized that uh, after a while, you really got sick of Grug complaining about Guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 it was funny at first, but then just got really thin by the end. So they just did not have enough planes, trains, and automobiles to, to, to sustain the whole movie. And they realized that they really loved Grug for wanting to protect his family at all costs. And then they thought, okay, well, then they changed the, the reference point. They're like, let's make it Little Miss Sunshine. Um, Little Miss Sunshine in prehistoric times, the family all have to go along to. They put a real threat, which is just like their, their home is going to be completely obliterated by this yeah. tectonic shift. So they push them on this adventure altogether. And then it changes. And consequently, the movie is like a movie of two halves, like, but it's two halves running concurrently. So there's like yeah. Grug and Guy, and then there's Eat and Grug. Right. Yeah. And uh, as, as Ed Gombert said to me, it was like they couldn't figure out whether it was plain strains and automobiles or father of the bride. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and so like it, it even like, it even like, uh, uh, someone was on a real big, like Steve Martin kick, I guess. Oh mate. No, I mean like we were on ugly dolls and we had an executive turn to us and be like, yeah, can you make it like revenge of the nerds? Like th th there are so many um, moments in, um, in an executive's mind, which come from the eighties. And that's where most of the executives were like at their formative years. <laughs> My reference points are from the 80s. And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do that, great. Um, but um, uh, um, consequently, at the beginning, you know there are those beautiful bits where Eep is like looking at the sun and stuff, yes. and she enters out? You can see some of that storytelling confusion of the two versions being laid over each other because it mm -hmm. starts, the movie starts like it's going to be her story. And then by the end, really, it's Grug's arc completely. Yeah. He, he ends up changing, he ends up throwing them over the ravine, and then it's him alone at the end, having his idea with the saber-toothed tiger. And so it's like, you can see that this was a movie that, 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 that was one thing, and then turned into another thing, and then turned into, oddly enough, a chimera, <laughs> like <laughs> the creatures. Yeah. But, but it's still, for all of like the moments that I could pick apart the story dynamics of it, it's such a beautiful chimera, such a beautifully designed, amusing, like endlessly creative chimera that it works well yeah it could have easily have just fallen on that kind of arc of um guy and ape like the 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 love story between them but like yeah. i love the fact that it is a love story between a father and a daughter and like just a, a father and his like his love for his family like like mm. she happens to be the prism that that is shown through the most because she is the one who is obviously the furthest away from like already being in the bosom of the family she's the one like pushing against it all mm. so, but like yeah it's I, I i kind of had a slight eye roll when i was like oh this is just gonna be about like 
this is going to get sidelined with this kind of love story between Ypres and Guy. And then I was pleasantly surprised when it wasn't like, do you know what I, mean? I was like, oh, this is great. Like, I was scared, like, it was going to be family in the first act, and then it would be family trying to maybe find uh, Ypres and uh, like Guy. And something happens, like, do you know what I mean? Mm. And, and they're kind of separated. Whereas, like, you saying about the uh, Little Miss Sunshine, like, that's that's beautiful like i think that's such like a great like amazing thing and i guess a lot of people won't know that like obviously people in animation these are going to be their reference points uh, yeah. reference points to make that they're gonna they do watch other types of films it's not just gonna be oh let's try and make it like that other animation we're all, children are we're all like we're all just guys in film school like <laughs> we're all just there we all want the dark crystal 10 parts yeah, yeah. puppets like we're all that guy at the water cooler or the guy on the couch like just like wake and baking thinking about like what, what would people want to see that that, that that i mean this touches upon something that's so kind of weirdly like emotional for me which is like okay so i worked on like the first movie i worked on was not a, a critical you know success you know yeah. um it was ugly dolls and it was it was it was you know it kind of came and went you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and and i think the audience were kind of wise to what it was trying to do you know like i mean movie audiences are so literate now they're so uh, savvy and and so unless you really have a, a, a really winning hand like it's hard to to corner a market when 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 you're trying to create a, a tentpole franchise you know um and and now i'm working on the other end of the spectrum with uh with henry selick on, on on his you know his first project in about 10 years um with netflix and and key and peel which is like i don't know like i mean the, for all the sort of like you know for, for all of my bad luck working on ugly dolls in terms of just like the frustration we felt constantly trying to get that movie to fruition the head of story on Ugly Dolls was also the head of story on Wonder Wild. So without Ugly Dolls, I wouldn't be where I am right yeah. now. So I'm always going to look at it with love. But it touches upon something that I had to work on a big Hollywood movie to understand, which is that, like, one of the things I love about your podcast, mate, is that, like, you will go to town on a bad Nicolas Cage movie. But at the same time, you do it with an awful lot of love and an awful lot of understanding that, like, <laughs> do you know what? Nobody goes into any movie no matter what level of hollywood like trying to make a bad movie we're all we're all movie fans and all the people who like cast cage in terrible movies probably grew up loving the rock you know like i he was my like when i first watched the rock you talk about bayhem right (laughs) my god the most unrealistic part of that movie is that nicholas cage has a giant apartment and a girlfriend with pigtails who desperately wants to marry him like that is like true this movie is not realistic but I loved it, and like, 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 like he—he's—he's he's a huge pillar of a lot of film fans' like experience of the nineties, like you know, from 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 Nerdy Cage to Villain Cage in The Rock, where it's like that's like his best role, and 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 he's only the villain for ten minutes in that movie, you know, before he changes faces with John Travolta. Okay, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, my favorite Nick Cage performance, hands down, is Nicolas Cage as Castor Troy. Not even Nicolas Cage as Sean Archer. Nicolas Cage as Castor Troy. And I wish that he played more villains because he was, that was like the height of Cage for me because he had more fun in that 10-minute opening sequence that you, you don't even think of John Travolta as anything other than that character. You think of him as Castor Troy from that opening 10 yep. minutes. That's how good he is in that movie. And then, like, Con Air, like, where you just go, full beefcake cage like he he had the full trifecta of goofy action movie he could be the nerd he could be the villain and he could be the sort of cheesy 
uh, um, hero. And, and, and a lot of the people who now make movies, you know, they love Jeff Goldblum. They love, um, uh, they love uh, Nick Cage. I mean, John Travolta's career is oddly enough followed a similar trajectory. They like both of them right now, it's 50-50 if it's going to be a good movie. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, I, th- I think Travolta, like the last film I heard him starring in was a uh, tale of a like obsessed stalker. And yes. Directed by it looked Durst. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was written and directed by Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit. So I'm not sure if that is uh, a mark. I mean, like, part, of it, like, part of me feels like I could make it a masterpiece. <laughs> but, but, like it's weird. It's like sometimes these actors go into these weird periods where it's like, I, um, both Travolta and Cage have something that I like to call the the the, the hair theory, which is uh, that um, my theory. I, I have no scientific backing for this whatsoever, but you probably know better than I do. Wait, you wait, wait! Before you go, but yeah, before you before you go into this, like, there's actually three questions I ask everyone. Oh yeah, go um, for it. And it, no, no, actually, you go with your point because it doesn't really apply yeah. for this film because it's it's actually Cage's. Well, I'd be curious to hear him anyway, but but like first I'll I'll, I'll finish what I was going to say, and then yeah, like yeah. by all means ask me because we'll figure yeah. it out. Like like I mean I'll I'll happily um, uh, yeah. uh, play ball because it's like I could talk about Cage as much as I could talk about animation. <laughs> um, so so I have this theory, which is the hair theory, which is that um, I think that if um, if Cage's hair is short, odds are it's going to be a good movie, right? His the quality of the movie correlates to the length of his hair. And it's the same for John Travolta. When they have short hair, then like, like if Cage has short hair, short hair, it's going to be something like Lord of War, Matchstick Men, anytime Oliver Stone's cast him in something. And if he has long hair, odds are it's going to be a fucking train wreck. It's going to be like uh, Next, Bangkok Dangerous, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, whatever. Like it's going to be, it's going to be really risible Cage. And then if his hair is mid, if his hair is like a medium cut, it's probably going to be okay. You know what I mean? It's going to be like National Treasure, Bad Lieutenant. Like, like he'll be, he'll be like, he'll be passable. And and weirdly, that happened with Travolta too, which is like, I I, I don't know if like the barber or his stylist that he works with reads his <laughs> script before he's like, oh, oh, what's it, what's it called? Bangkok Dangerous. Oh, okay. I, I think we'll get you some extensions. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I'm actually working on yeah, like a three point system of trying to figure out like empirically, like what makes a kind of like a cage film good or bad on this weird scale that doesn't apply for the crudes because it's animated, but it is. Just well, a- I don't necessarily think like, like let, let's hear the criteria and I'll see if I can, I'll see if I can tailor so, it. So, so, so what, one of them is like, the first one is, does he have bad hair? Like, mm. does he have unequivocally bad hair? Obviously like we, we don't know. Cause like Grug is, is, is a, is but we can speak for the character design. Grog has yes. definitely got bad hair. Yes. So we can answer that as a yes, as an affirmative. Um, does Cage do a crazy voice? Like, does he have a mad voice? Uh, I, I always like to use the example of, like, you think of a classic Cage crazy voice mm-hmm. of Vampire's Kiss when he's kind yeah. of yeah. doing this, like, where the hell is he from? Or do we get, like, is he doing something interesting with his voice? Because a lot of the time, like, if you watch, like, a Next or a Pay the Ghost, yeah. he's just kind of doing this... What's going on? Oh my god, like, man! They're doing this kind of um, sub 
Keanu Reeves. Subconscious. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a, there, I mean, like, I, I don't know if you covered in 2001, his first animated vocal performance was in A Christmas Carol, which was like a, I think it might have been a made for TV kind of animation, but it was like Simon Callow as Scrooge, Nicolas Cage as Marley. I don't know if you've seen him in that, but oh my God. I'd always sounds- planned to do that as a Christmas special and then I ended up like, <laughs> I think never got around to it. But, um, you can find only his scenes on YouTube and that's all you need to watch. Amazing. Just, I mean, yeah. He sounds like he has been tranquilized. He is <laughs> just like, and it's like Marley, he's playing freaking Marley's ghost. And if ever there was a character for Cage to be pun intended, unchained. Yes. Is Marley's ghost. <laughs> but he's like, oh, Ebenezer. He just sounds like, literally sounds like someone slipped something into his drink. He, he, I, I, I'm, Ninety percent sure he was buzzed when he was when he was doing that recording. But no, um. So yeah, no. Does he do a funny voice? I direct you to the aforementioned acting stick. Yes. And then the final and third question of this like three point thing is, um, do we get a cage freak out? Do we get a cage like? Do we, mm. Does he freak out at any moment? Which is I think that's that, like the entire duration of this movie. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I guess it does tick those boxes. But yeah, yeah. like. It, it, it's weird because, like I mentioned before, this is the beginning of that era of referential Cage. This is the beginning of people casting Cage because he's Nicholas Cage. Well, they, yeah, this this is a very interesting decade for Cage. The kind of 2000 to 2020 um, makes up for half of the movies in his whole career. And oh, it's a 30-year career. So, like, he just really picked, like, it was, yeah, he was going pretty fast anyway, but... All of a sudden, he just like kicked in. He drove angry up to like 100 miles an hour throughout those years, and it's, it's almost like yeah, you almost want him to team up with Takashi Mike because they yes. both of those guys they know how to freaking produce. Like <laughs> they're producing like they got like 10 minutes to live, you know? Yeah. So um, yeah. Before I let you go, um, David, uh, where like where can people like keep up to date with what you're doing? Because you do these amazing kind of breakdowns of animated films on Twitter, right? These, uh, yeah. You don't mind talking a little bit about Oh, yeah, that sure. <laughs> That's funny because, like, I was talking about how, like, uh, you know, no one in this business is trying to make a bad movie. Like, one of the things that I always want to do is I want to be able to analyze the, uh, the, the, the industry that I'm in. And that's one of the reasons why I'm glad you asked me to do this podcast because it was an opportunity to dissect something, but lovingly that I know people who were involved in it. I'm fans of people who were involved in it, but also I didn't have anything to do with it. So I get to just enjoy uh, uh, like putting my story hat on and just sort of like dissecting it. But um, so recently I don't have like, uh, I don't have a a podcast. I've guested on a bunch of uh, uh, some of your friends' podcasts, uh, Sparklight and um, and uh, Sudden Double Deep and The Bitter End. I know you had Todd Jordan on. Yes. Uh, uh, he's fantastic. And that was a great episode too. <laughs> um, uh, so so what, um, you don't get a lot of time to work uh, uh, on anything outside of your job when you're a story artist because, man, it's some crazy hours. And, and we're, we're one of the few uh, industries right now that's still going because yeah. so much of our work can be done remotely. And, and I, I'm, I'm talking to you from Des Moines, Iowa, not even Burbank or <laughs> wherever uh, uh, the, the studio is <laughs> i actually uh made my girlfriend laugh uh, the other th- oh she she laughed bitterly but it was like um uh i was like i think i had just gotten consumed with coronavirus news and i was talking about hey i just trimmed my beard because they say you've got to get up and get into your clothes every day and just try and act like you're in a normal day and just don't let the depression get to you and she just looked at me like 
you work remotely from home and you never go out. Nothing in your life has changed. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? You don't even trim your beard. This is insane. I was like, yeah, but I can't go to the pub. He's like, you go to the pub like twice every six months. And I'm like, yeah, but now I know I can't Can't. want to. It's like, she was like, you have first world problems on top of first world problems. (laughs) Um, I was like, okay, hoisted on my own return. But um, uh, so, so, um, one thing I've been doing recently is, as you say, I've been, uh, I just decided I don't really have a desire to work for Disney animation. I mean, like, I uh, love what they do, but like, uh, in, like my career goal is like, that one of the big three. Um, but I felt like now Disney Plus is up and I've got a lot more, like everyone's got a lot more time. Yeah. I felt like I want to be a scholar of the industry I'm in. And I just realized I hadn't fully watched every Disney movie. So I just set myself a challenge to watch every single one of them that had been like even the live action animation hybrids, you know, like, um, like you know, like, like some of the like even the package movies and the propaganda movies they yeah. made in the 1940s and things. And I just set myself this crazy challenge and just started doing tweet threads reviewing them and like for no real reason other than to just amuse myself and for my mates. And I've gotten a really great response and and I've done about five of them so far and and like. I was amazed at how much they ballooned because like the last one I did was, was Dumbo. And I didn't even think I had a lot to say about Dumbo, but it ended up being like a hundred tweets long. And I was like, what, why did I do this? Like it's, I've got 40 films left and I got all in on Dumbo. What the well, I, I, I think that especially that time in the, the Disney like history is quite interesting culturally. A lot of those films and I like Dumbo, especially like uh, not to obviously yeah like not to get bogged down something too heavy but like a lot of lot of like race issues oh yes a lot of early dis- and yeah a lot I just, to unpack there yeah i just wanted to ask yeah are you do you have any plans to talk about uh i, I think it's the only one of the only films that's not actually on disney plus you're talking about song of the south the south yeah i watched it and i will be talking about it oh man yeah yeah i like weird, weirdly it wasn't until like last year i kind of had to reevaluate that film because i i remember owning that on uh, vhs as a kid mm. uh, like uh i listened to like a four-part um or like six-part like podcast series called um i uh, think uh things you things you should know mm. like kind of these hollywood like breakdowns so they do like amazing stuff on like uh charles manson or like and his like role in hollywood that's cool but like, yeah, there was a there was a whole season on um, the Song of the South, and it was listening to that, and I kind of I, I I had these like glimmers for years. Of this I remember it being like weirdly icky, but like at the same time, I remember Zippity Doodah was a banger in my head. Yeah, no, it is, it is a banger. It's like a, a it's crazy. I mean, like, and and my memory of it was really just that song. Yes. like I it, it 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 occupied this weird syrupy haze. Yeah. in like my six-year-old self that, that, that had no impression of what I didn't know, I didn't know. And that's like, that's probably going to be what I find most interesting about dissecting it is that like reading about how, what Walt's thought process was when he was making it and how he even tried to hire someone who told him not to make it. He hired that guy to write it. Yes. He said, if, if anyone's going to make this better, it's going to be you. And then he ended up throwing out a lot of that guy's ideas. <laughs> and it's like, but it, it always comes back to like, nobody wants to make a bad movie. And, and uh, one of the things that I've become incredibly passionate about recently, and one of the reasons why I've had a lot to say about Disney's classic era is because I read a book called The Queens of Animation. 
which is about uh, the unsung and often completely left out sort of legacies of some of the women, like the first story artists, some of the first animators who were women in Disney's golden age. And when you get to things like uh, the black centaurette who was cut out of Fantasia being this sort of servile, almost slave-like yeah. uh, affectation. And then you get to things like Song of the Tap, you get to the, the crows in Dumbo. Like you realize the importance of diversity within our industry, the importance of having people in the room who have different experiences to that of being a white cisgendered male, which is what I am. And, and, and so understanding that, understanding that, that there are things that I will never know, I don't know unless I surround myself with other incredibly talented people. Um, um, that's probably why I really, that's, I, weirdly, the, the more uncomfortable parts of reviewing these Disney movies has actually been my favorite part of doing these tweet threads. Because, because there's nothing wrong with saying that you love when I see an elephant fly and, and actually love the, the, the way the crows fit into the story because they are a high point of Dumbo for me, but they're also intensely problematic. Yes. And just to be able to acknowledge it, it's okay to acknowledge it, it's okay to talk about it because that's how we move them forward. And uh, you mentioned Song of the South, man. Um, <laughs> Song of the South, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to be working on a movie which is being done with Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key. And they, you know, like, you can't watch Song of the South without immediately thinking about their magical Negro sketch where yep. the two magical Negroes come in and start like throwing hexes at each other. And like, <laughs> and you know, the animated bird like has laser vision. It's freaking epic. <laughs> and it's like, we're, we're living in a different age now. And yeah. people who were, who, who were once, you know, a slave to whatever representation people just put on them are now in charge of like, they've got the mic. And so that's an interesting time to yeah. be working in film. And it's an interesting time to be working with, like I said, animation which is like aimed at the most malleable impressionable minds because it starts with representation if you establish something as being normal to a child it's normal forever it's like oh people of different color people of different sexualities people of different gender identities yeah. you can you can create representation that 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 doesn't change someone's worldview it can invent someone's yeah. world and that's a, that's a high responsibility, even though we're just silly gag writers and, you know, so much of it's crazy and stressful and silly. But, like, there's something really beautiful about that. And uh, writing those tweets, uh, those tweet threads has been a part of that and me almost trying to hold myself to a mark sometimes. Uh, amazing. Where can people, yeah, where can people find that? Like, what's your Twitter handle? Um, uh, my, my, I believe my Twitter handle is at drumble. Uh, I have no idea why I picked that name. I think, I think back when I was problematic myself, I thought it would be my rapper name. <laughs> so, Rumble, yeah, yeah, spin that shit. Um, but now I'm now that's pretty much all I do. All I do is guest on podcasts and talk about animation whenever I'm not um, on a deadline. Perfect. Well, just in case you have got a deadline to get back to, David, this uh, feels like a perfect perfect place to leave the conversation. Like leave the conversation here. Yeah, I've had a great time, mate. This, this was been, absolutely this was a blast, mate. The pleasure's been all mine. This has been so 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 fun. Always a pleasure to geek out over something, especially Cage, man. I really appreciate it.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copa Connections. A Drip Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network, it's family. <laughs>